misunderstood. Yeah. Some say that he's up to no good around the neighborhood. Revolve your information. A lot of my brothers got education. Now check it. You got your Wall Street brother. Your blue collar brother. You're down for whatever chilling on the corner brother. My name is Lalu Davies Yemington, and you're listening to My Brother Podcast. The energy industry is ever evolving. Today, so much emphasis is placed on renewables and how we combat climate change. My guest today is a long-term energy industry veteran who really went on to have a historic career at ExxonMobil, Gerald McKelvey. Gerald, thank you so much for uh, being a guest on my brother podcast today. Uh, if you would, would you start by just sharing a little bit about yourself and how you arrived at this uh, this place in life today? Uh, well, it's important to, uh, to to comment that that I am retired. Uh, I spent thirty three years uh, with Exxon Mobil, a company I joined uh, after uh, completing my MBA studies at UCLA, and um, you know, I arrived at this point in life by uh, choosing one company or one industry to work for. And uh, despite some significant uh, ups and downs, we had several oil booms and oil busts during my career. Uh, I was fortunate and blessed to be able to navigate uh, uh, those difficulties and, uh, and participate in an industry that it's still vital to the economic success and economic well-being of not only the United States, but the entire world. Uh, so energy is important. That's one of the reasons I uh, uh, joined there initially. Uh, I saw that my direct efforts and my indirect efforts while working in the, in the business uh, directly affected the lives of people because they consider a world or consider a country where we had insufficient supplies of energy, the, the first thing you would notice is that the prices would be uh, tremendously higher than what we're seeing today. And, and even, even in the difficult times when we had three and four dollar per gallon gasoline on a historic basis, the price of gasoline is, is, uh, has grown less than the rate of inflation. Uh, through my entire career at ExxonMobil. So I think that's that's pretty noble, notable to understand. But without energy, without jet fuel, without diesel fuel for trucks, uh, without uh, uh, whether it's nuclear energy or natural gas uh, for our power plants, our standard of living would be substantially lower uh, than it is today. And so uh, I always saw the industry as one that was vital, it was important. Uh, and, and yes, uh, it's an industry that, uh, that has its issues, uh, primarily with the uh, disposal of energy waste, whether it's uh, material, uh, combustion-related material that's exhausted from cars or the flaring materials with natural gas and crude oil production. These, these things uh, do need to be worked. And, and I think the industry is working on them and doing uh, a, a credible job of, of working on these issues. Fantastic. So, Gerald, you you reside in Dallas, Texas now, but uh, talk to me a bit about your upbringing. Where are you from, and what was your early childhood like? Well, that's interesting because uh, you know, in a sense, my life uh, has come full circle 
in that uh, I now reside just outside Dallas, actually in Tarrant County, which is uh, uh, the county of the city of Fort Worth, Texas, which is where I was born. And, uh, so I was born in, in Fort Worth at, uh, uh, at what was then called Carswell Air Force Base. My father was an uh, enlisted man in the U.S. military, spent a career uh, 22 years in the military. Um, and from my early life after birth, we, uh, we moved to uh, Florida and then New York and uh, spent some time in Europe during my, during my toddler years, I guess you could say, uh, in both Germany and England. And uh, my sort of first recognition and memory of who I was when we landed in at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, uh, when, where I entered elementary school and, and went on uh, through most of elementary school. My father then, then retired and we returned to Fort Worth, uh, which happens to be the hometown of my mother and, uh, and a county in which uh, there are five generations on my mother's side of the family have lived in Tarrant County. Uh, so I finished uh, my last year or two of elementary school and went to uh, middle and high school in Fort Worth. Uh, I sometimes say it, and I don't say it too publicly, but uh, uh, after having grown up in uh, Europe and Missouri and other places, uh, uh, Fort Worth was quite uh, a <laughs> place for, uh, uh, for me. And, and uh, I won't say I really didn't like it. I'll just say that, that I couldn't wait to leave. Uh, <laughs> And uh, uh, upon graduating high school, uh, I applied to a number of colleges. Uh, uh, the two most notable ones uh, that I uh, was accepted to and had a real decision uh, was to go to either Rice University or Notre Dame or the University of Houston. And as it turned out, uh, you know, we could not afford uh, uh, the private schools, Rice or Notre Dame or Swarthmore. Or, several others that I remember. And so uh, uh, for me, it was a pretty easy decision uh, that influenced heavily by my father who said, uh, uh, you, you know, education is important. In fact, it's something he stressed during the entire time of my life. And so I always had the, the attitude that I would pursue higher education after high school. So it's important, but it's also important that you go where you can afford and that you don't burden yourself with a huge amount of debt uh, that you'll spend the rest of your life trying to pay back. And uh, although I wasn't totally receptive to the message at the time, I mean, I can recall my father and I having some difficult discussions, if you might, you can imagine, um, about whether or not I go to one of the other schools. And at, but at the end, uh, I found myself convinced and. Uh, uh, moved to Houston and entered the University of Houston. And, and I can say, you know, fast forward to today that it was uh, one of the best decisions of my life. Uh, and I won't spend a lot of time talking about the university other than to say that, that I found it to be uh, a place that at least for African-American uh, young people in the early 1970s, I entered college in 1972, and to put, put it in perspective, uh, uh, Dr. King was assassinated in 1968. And so we're not large numbers of African-American students at, at the large state universities in Texas. But the University of Houston was one that had started to open up uh, due to both the demands from the local citizenry in Houston 
and and the fact that uh, they that they invited African American athletes to begin to participate in the major sports uh, in the early 1960s. Uh, I believe it was Warren McVay in football and uh, Elvin Hayes in basketball, and so uh, so you saw an institution that you know, unlike the other large state universities in Texas, uh, was beginning to open its arms and invite African American students there. Uh, I had a wonderful time there. Uh, I will note that I only spent three years, and not to say that I'm uh, was that smart, but uh, uh, but a combination of taking heavy loads and going to summer school allowed me to graduate in three years, uh, and then to uh, move on to uh, Los Angeles, California. So, getting back to the the point about how I ended up here today, uh, uh, after uh, moving to California and spending. Uh, a couple of years there at UCLA, getting a master's degree. I chose to join Exxon in Houston. Uh, worked for the company for 33 years. Worked in Houston, uh, Connecticut, New York, uh, New Jersey, Wyoming, uh, and Australia, among other places. I traveled to uh, uh, most of the continent. Uh, I've, I've been to most of the major cities on the planet and some of the minor cities on the planet. Mm-hmm. Been a very interesting time uh, in what we would call Love Country, Angola, uh, in the Kazamba area, which is several hundred miles from the capital city, Luanda, where people still lived in uh, in mud huts, and they used animal dung, the burning of animal animal dung for a fire. Mm. And so, uh, and this is you know in the early 2000s. So there were vast areas of, of the world that do not enjoy the standard of living that we have, uh, in part driven by the, the abundance of energy uh, here in the U.S. But, but that's kind of the, the you know the rounds. And um, you know after retiring about ten years ago now, uh, I chose to engage in a number of not-for-profit activities, uh, uh, primarily uh, math and science education for. Uh, uh, kids basically in middle school uh, and higher education through my uh, continued work at the University of Houston. Mm-hmm. I know you didn't want to talk too much about the university experience, but I think it's unique. You graduate in three years, going to U of H at a time that was rather interesting as someone who's uh, a Houstonian by choice now. Uh, I've heard some stories about what life was like uh, at U of H, I think the era in which you attended, there were a lot of firsts that occurred. A lot of unique people attended U of H during those times. Uh, you know, the first African-American student body president was elected in the in, in the 70s, someone who I believe you happen to know as well. Can you just talk a bit about what was your experience as a student like and how did you put yourself in a position to thrive, notwithstanding other obligations you must have had uh, in addition to, you know, a, just being a student who was apparently diligent. Yeah, uh, you know, great question. Yes, I did enter the University of Houston at a, at a very interesting time uh, and at a time when a number of, of very interesting and very talented people also chose to uh, to attend the University of Houston. It not only includes uh, the first African-American Student Government Association president, president but the current mayor of Houston, uh, the, uh, the first African-American astronaut to actually uh, do a, a, what I think they call it an extravehicular activity. Some people yes. call it <laughs> precisely. Uh, 
but uh, uh, these were all friends of mine. These, they, they, they were they were not just friends; they were they were close friends. And uh, and I think as you know, we we saw ourselves uh, as not only students there, but we joined with those other students, and, and many of them are, are nameless, and and and, and I'm not may not even be able to remember uh, some of them. But but the, there was a group of students who who what I would say that agitated is probably not the right word. Uh, that's the word that people use to describe people who are uh, and just cutting up for the sake of cutting up. But but people who were clamoring for change. And I'll give you a couple of examples, which I you know, sometimes they're, they're viewed as trivial. But when I when I think about my own history there and my own contributions. Uh, I, I like to look back at this and say, well, yeah, I think I did make uh, uh, a, a bit of a difference and a bit of a, a contribution there. Uh, but I live along with a number of other African-American students in the, uh, the dormitories on campus at the University of Houston. And um, I noticed that, that during my entire freshman year, uh, uh, I did not attend nor did I observe uh, the usage of any of the uh, facilities in the dormitories uh, by African-American organizations. I mean, you know, let's cut to the chase. Uh, uh, you know, they didn't, African-American students couldn't even have parties in the dorm. Mm. And, um, and what I found out was, well, you had to have a sponsor in order to reserve the facilities, whether it's the old Oberholzer ballroom that that area's being torn down or been torn down now, or the basement and Taub and set of gas hall and places like that. And so, as a sophomore, uh, I was fortunate. I applied for and was accepted to become a resident advisor in the dorms. I think that was kind of a first. Uh, not not many sophomores get to be uh, resident advisors. Uh, but I also noticed that suddenly, as a resident advisor, I can now sponsor utilization of the dorms facilities. And so that's when we started having parties in the the basements in Taubman Setagas Hall and, and Overholzer Ballroom. And, you know, I think, as you well know, I also uh, became a member of Cap Alpha Psi fraternity. And uh, Cap Alpha Psi was the first African-American organization to use uh, the main ballroom uh, in the student center. It was called the Houston Room. Mm. So, so these were these, these are they're, they're a little bit trivial in the sense you say that you know, oh God, you, you got to have a party on campus. But remember, none of us were able to have parties on campus mm. as mm. Of, because of a, in a sense, a silly rule when you say you have to have a sponsor, and then all of the sponsors. Uh, happen not to be African American. Now, I'm not going to say that they deliberately uh, kept use of the facilities from us, but if you couldn't enlist a sponsor, you couldn't use the facilities. Yeah. So um, I kind of look at that as as uh, um, you know one of the uh, one of the the changes that, that you know that I participated in and helped lead and help encourage and and I also like to to think that that I helped encourage uh, others to. Uh, you know, whether it's join, uh, in, you know, join fraternities. Uh, you know, I, I made a special effort to reach out to 
uh, young African-American men uh, who I sensed uh, were talented. I mean, I, you know, can, I personally contacted uh, Keith Wade mm. uh, joining uh, Cap Alpha Psi, and he joined Cap Alpha Psi as a, as a second semester freshman. So it was not long after he came on campus. Uh, Bernard Harris came uh, a couple of years later. Uh, I, I know that I was involved in helping to reach out to him. And he also pledged as a second semester freshman. So we were reaching out uh, to talented young men. And, um, and once they joined the fraternity, they didn't leave their talents at the door. Uh, <laughs> continued to, uh, to work and and they saw that you know we, we there was a real need for leadership and for people to to kind of get out and challenge the structures if we didn't like a structure such as not being able to use some of the university's facilities for parties uh, that some of us needed to be the ones to to reach out and to try to change that. Yeah, fascinating. You uh, you've you know, stretched my uh, lesson of history about U of H. And, and so that's definitely delightful. After U of H, you decide to uh, go out to UCLA to obtain your master's degree. What influenced that decision? <laughs> that's a really great question. And I've, I've been talking about that with my uh, my sons uh, most recently. And they, they all wonder, how did you end up in California? And, uh, and, and, and it's, it's a relatively short story. Uh, uh, Keith Wade, who we've been talking about, uh, had a girlfriend who had uh, been a student at the University of Houston but had transferred to Pepperdine. And he wanted to visit her. And uh, he asked if I would be interested in going to California. And we said, I, I said, sure. So we hopped in my old 1966 Chrysler affectionately known as the Blue Goose at the time. And no one thought that this car was going to make it to California, much less make it back. But, mm. uh, but we drove out. We had a great, uh, you know, a great trip uh, uh, driving out to California. And uh, while there, although I was only at the end of my, my third year, my junior year at, at the University of Houston, uh, I was already thinking about graduate school or law school, you know, some type of postgraduate education. And so while there, I, I took some time to go and visit uh, schools like uh, uh, USC and UCLA and uh, I made a trip to uh, Northern California to visit Stanford. Uh, while at UCLA, I met uh, a gentleman who worked in the uh, admissions office, an African-American a man by the name of Charles Harding, and uh, I, I don't know what Charles saw in me. I was just a twenty-year-old, uh, uh, you know, rising senior who was here for a visit. But he he took me on a tour of the school, and uh, you know, perhaps for about an hour, uh, we spent walking around the school. And uh, when I returned to his office, he uh, he asked me to sit for a minute because he wanted to get someone to uh, to come and meet me. And he stepped away, and a couple minutes later, he came back uh, uh, with uh, Bill Brazenly, I believe was his, his name. And uh, he introduced me to Mr. Brazenly, and, and we chatted for, you know, it couldn't have been more than five or six minutes. And with Mr. Brazenly left, and um, uh, then Mr. Harding, uh, who was a second-year student at the school at the time, looked at me and said, 
what would it take for you to come to UCLA this coming fall? And I thought he was joking. I just looked at him and said, well, first I need to graduate from undergraduate school. And he said, but you told me you, you, you don't have uh, that many hours left to go. And I said, no, I only have 12 hours to go. He said, well, if you complete those 12 hours and come back this fall, uh, then we'll have some support. We'll have a fellowship for you. And uh, I, you know, honestly didn't know how to take this news because it was certainly, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking uh, a minimum of a year away from, from entering graduate business school. And the gentleman was saying, if I could get back to Los Angeles with a college degree in three months, wow. that could get me some fellowship support. And uh, and so, long story short, you see that uh, I I, uh, I got back to Los Angeles uh, in three months. I, I, I returned to Houston, uh, graduated, and then uh, then moved to California that uh, that fall and entered uh, the UCLA Business School, which was uh, certainly one of the top. 10 or 15 business schools in the country and they had a unique way of teaching that ultimately was, in, was embraced by a number of u.s business schools uh, as it related to what was called a field study or a consulting type project so you didn't write a thesis you know sort of an academic thesis you actually went out found a client uh, and addressed the real issue that the client had and delivered uh, a professional report both to the client and to the school. And you needed to do that to graduate. So, uh, you know, I kind of went from being a, uh, you know, uh, finishing my junior year at the University of Houston to uh, less than two years later, working on a significant uh, project for the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. And, uh, you know, sometimes to, to this day, I wonder uh, just how we <laughs> completed that work and, and how I was able to make a significant contribution to that work. Uh, uh, which I believe I did, but uh, that was my UCLA experience. Uh, uh, got to meet a lot of fabulous people in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, the, the mayor at the time was uh, Tom Bradley, uh, who later another absolutely yeah. another new uh, who who, had, who later ran for governor. Uh, I met Bill uh, uh, Withers, uh, mm. who ended up uh, marrying. Uh, uh, one of the women in the class ahead of me. It's a two-year school, so there's always a first year and a second year. So he married one of the second-year students, and so I got to know Bill uh, a little bit during the time, and, and and a lot of other really fascinating people. Ron Sweeney, he's an attorney, and uh, I know that that uh, if you recall the uh, at Martha's Vineyard, uh, 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 trying to recall who who. We had a special guest up there where we all went to the, the theater and Hank Aaron. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, Tom Morehead was there and a few other people. Yeah, and they showed the, the, the film. And I, I'm, I'm, forgive me, I just don't recall the, the name of the film, but Ron Sweeney was featured in that film. And that's the first mm -hmm. time uh, that I had actually uh, laid eyes on him uh, since our time at UCLA. Wow. It was, uh, was really great to see just how well uh, he has done. He's, a, he's a, one of the top entertainment attorneys uh, in the country. So, so part, you know, part of this whole um, process, if you will, and, and you know, if we get down to talking about, okay, what do you, what do you advise people to do? You know, one of the things that, that's very important is that you surround yourself with uh, talented people who have aspirations. Uh, uh, 
uh, of accomplishing something significant with their life. Uh, and, and it almost doesn't matter what it is. And, and I'm not certainly not saying go out and chase down uh, every, you know, any celebrity that you come into contact with and, and, and try to befriend them. Uh, in, in fact, uh, you know, I, I count very few so-called celebrities in, in my inner circle of uh, uh, friends and colleagues and people I know. These are, these are uh, just uh, everyday, hardworking, talented uh, people who want to make positive change or a positive impact uh, on, on society. And uh, they're not hard to find. Uh, and, and these are the people that can, can really help uh, impact and influence uh, uh, your own life, especially if you happen to be someone who does also want to make positive change uh, in, in society. So I've been real fortunate. I mean, it's just, just it's great when you sit down and talk to people and say, yeah, you know, I've got a good friend who's, you know, who's flown a couple shuttle missions. i got another good friend who's the mayor of Houston. i got another good friend who's an attorney in uh, Anniston, Alabama, Theo Thomas, uh, who's a, a, a superior African-American intellectual. You don't, you don't hear much about him. I know he's general counsel of Cap Alpha Psi, but... Yeah. But uh, you should uh, uh, engage in some of his, his writings. I mean, what he is writing and the contribution he's making to the effort uh, by pointing out whether it's historical uh, faults with uh, you know the basic stories that are being told, or yeah. he's a great art historian. So I mean, it's just just uh, just fascinating to uh, have happened to you know to meet Cleo when. We were both uh, in our early twenties, mm. and, uh, and to remain lifelong friends. That's incredible, remarkable. So you go from within a span of five years, living Tarrant County, Fort Worth, right. matriculating through U of H, UCLA. Now you're on with your MBA. You end up at Exxon Mobil. What was it like during those those early days, and how was Exxon where you started, or, or you know? got your first job well you know it's it's interesting you, you, sometimes you have a different view when you look back than the view that you had when you were actually going through the process mm. um, you know and I don't want to be too critical of Exxon but you know kind of in the context of uh, what we're dealing with today and when I think about Exxon in 1977 uh, I happened to join Exxon in a division of Exxon that, that had responsibility for de de developing its coal assets. And although it was primarily an oil and gas company, there was a big push being made to move into uh, the coal sector. And uh, I was the very first African-American MBA uh, that they had hired. So the, the day I walked in, uh, I, I'm sure that I was a novelty. Mm. Uh, I was from California, although I had gone to school in Houston, but they had hired me from UCLA, so here's kind of a conservative Texan-style company hiring this black man from California. And, um, uh, and, and so when I kind of think about the early days, it was a, a combination of, uh, of having to prove yourself, which is what every new employee has to do. You've got to prove that you can do the job that you were hired for, and, and, and in Exxon's case, 
they, they're going to begin to evaluate not only how well you do that first job, but but how far they think you may advance in the company. They begin to make those um, uh, decisions, frankly, uh, very early in your career. So first impressions are lasting impressions. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so in my, my first, uh, certainly my first uh, two or three years there, uh, I made it a point to, um, to do everything I could to ensure that they could, they could, discern that there was no difference in the quality of this African-American MBA versus the quality of any other MBA that they hired, whether it's from Wharton or Harvard or the University of Chicago or Stanford or wherever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's not that difficult to see how good the competition is. The competition was good. It was stiff. And, uh, and, and in my case, uh, you know, I just said, I'm, you know, I went to a good school. I went to two good schools, and um, I think I can compete here. And and I'm not going to let um, uh, poor attitude or the lack of hard work uh, prevent me from being assessed just as well or better than the the MBAs who were hired from from some of the top schools who, who in, in, in all cases, uh, were white. Um, but the other thing I, I now recognize in looking back at that time uh, was um, the additional stress that this attitude places on you. Uh, the additional stress from the microaggression is the term mm -hmm. used now. But you know, looking back at it, this was kind of a daily occurrence. I mean, um, can you imagine someone walking up to you and and Believing that they're complimenting you by saying, uh, uh, you, you know, you think pretty well. You know, what kind of compliment is that? Mm. And at the time, you know, I probably didn't really know how to take it other than to say thank you. Now to look back at it, you know, I'm, 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 I'm extremely insulted mm. because they think that somehow I'm the only black man in America uh, who has a brain that works or that works as well as their brain. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that was, um, um, the, uh, you know, that was kind of the environment. Now I need to say a couple of things because I think this is important, you know, both in the context of what's happening today and, and certainly in the context of what my experience then. Um, and I got to do it in the form of, let's just say, there, there are two people I want to just spend a couple minutes talking about. One was the um, uh, the vice president and controller, senior vice president and controller of the coal division of this company. It's a guy named Johnny Pinch. Uh, I believe he's passed away now. Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, Johnny Pinch, from the first day, and, and, and this is an assessment I had at the time, and I have the same assessment today. Treated me the same way he treated everybody else. And um, and, and, and somewhat to, to their discomfort, he frequently brought up my name when he would talk to some of the other young MBAs and employees and say, you need to be more like Gerald McHale. And that was, you know, for them, I can see that must have been uh, a huge stress-causing 
effort mm-hmm. in 1977 to be told that you need to be more like a black man mm-hmm. than using the example of perhaps someone else who was in the company. But the second person, and, and, and I give all the plaudits to Johnny Pence. He was a tough guy, he was a tough guy to work for, but he helped develop me in my first uh, years with the company and, and uh, uh, certainly you know, helped me begin to expand my own horizons about what I might be able to do in my career there. And the second person I want to talk to, and I won't mention his name, but uh, he, was, um, uh, he was about 10 years older uh, than I was at the time, and he was a graduate of Ole Miss. So now if you understand, uh, you know, if you understand bias or if you understand prejudice or like those kinds of terms, when if you mentioned to me that you were from Ole Miss, in, in my case, the wall went straight up. This is mm-hmm. not a person that I want to know. Uh, who knows? He might have been involved with, you know, the Klan. Mm-hmm. About the right age to have potentially been involved with the the murder of those civil rights uh, activists who had gone to Mississippi to help with voter registration. I mean, those are the kinds of of thoughts that went through my, my mind when I met this guy. I'll just call him Sam, uh, who was from Mississippi, and so so. I basically kept him at arm's length, uh, you know, for, you know, for at least the first year. And then he was actually working in West Virginia, I think, and then he got transferred to Houston. So he's right down the hall now. And so one day he, uh, I'm walking by and, and he says, Hey, Gerald, uh, you know, come in, you know, just come in his office. And I came in his office and, and, uh, and sat down and, and then he, he just started, started talking. He said, Hey, have you signed up for, the thrift fund. I said, thrift fund? Well, it's, you know, it's the ExxonMobil savings plan. He said, you need to sign up for that and you need to put the maximum amount that you can afford in that plan and then add 10% to that. And then, and he goes through several of the company policies that, yeah, in some cases, the HR people had mentioned and, you know, whether or not you, you actually took action on it. Uh, was really up to you, but but he made sure that I understood those policies, understood the benefits of of, of, in, of being involved in those policies, and he extended you know the hand of friendship. Hey, if you ever have any questions about any of this, please don't hesitate to ask me. And uh, you know, and, and I'm sitting there in a chair, you know, kind of envisioning a guy with a white hood. Uh, over his head talking to me because all I'm thinking about is this dude is from Mississippi. Yeah. He doesn't have my best interest at heart. And uh, and I have to say that that he was, you know, the, the advice that he gave me and that he continued to give me, um, you know, for several years was invaluable. And um, and as I grew and evolved myself, I began to challenge some of my own biases and prejudices. And we've got to begin now to start discerning the character of individual people. And if they're gathered in a group and they all have hoods on, then then you can you can make a an assessment. But if you meet individuals, you need to learn how to push aside those biases. Mm-hmm. Take that person as they are. Let them present themselves to you 
before you determine in your own mind who they are and how they think and what they are. Yeah. So it was a it was a very valuable lesson for me uh, in, very early in my career, and and, uh, and and I think I made good use of it because I'm retired. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. So you you have a great boss who really, in a sense, levels the playing field and sees the ability that you have. And as you say early on, they're making those determinations, and he's not just making the determination about you it's clear he recognizes that you have some talent. How do you go from that position to sort of the next series of leaps? And how did you put yourself in a position to thrive within what at that point was still a relatively large organization? Yeah, those are, you know, great questions. Um, you know, I, I guess when I, when I, when I think back uh, at my own, own career, um, and, and some people might find fault with, with the, the way that I, you know, kind of organized my life because I know there's a, there's a, a correct way to say it, that God, family, and then your job and everything else. And, uh, and I didn't have a family, so I didn't really have to worry about that. So for me, it was God and job. And what that meant was from a priority standpoint that, uh, that I made sure that I took care of the requirements of my position uh, to the best of my ability, because that's all you can do is the best of your ability. But unfortunately for a lot of people, they, they don't leave their best on the field, if, if you understand the metaphor. Mm -hmm. So either because of attitudes or because of behavior, such as uh, uh, you know excessive partying on the weekend so that you show up for work on Monday, and you're fatigued rather than refreshed. Uh, you know, I always ensured that I was refreshed on Monday morning and ready to go to work, ready to go to battle. And so doing the very best you can all the time. Uh, you know, to work in a large organization, um, especially one where you, you, you may well spend your entire career there, is going to require a number of traits uh, but, but one I'll talk about is just persistence. Uh, you'll see that some people, the first sign of distress, uh, the first obstacle, the first time they have a slight trip, then suddenly the organization has gone off the rails. And I don't know why I'm putting all of my effort into this because it has all of these problems. Um, you know, I just found that that was not an attitude that was that was useful. Um, there's no perfect organization on this planet. So you can plug in Exxon or you can plug in uh, Pepsi or you can plug in Microsoft. It doesn't matter. They all have their their idiosyncrasies and they have their issues. And, and it's important then for the individual to uh, try to ensure that their own suite of talents and skills, especially your acquired skills, uh, match what the organization needs and what the organization is looking for. Uh, I found too many people, my, my attitude was, uh, I'd look out and say, say to one of my, you know, my, my supervisors, uh, uh, what would it take for me to get, and I would be specific, to get this person's job. And they would tell me, well, you know, here are the skills you need, and here are the background and experiences that you need, and you need an MBA, okay, got that. You need a CPA, okay, got that. You need to have worked in 
accounting operations. Okay, got that. You need to have worked in finance. Okay, got that. Oh, now suddenly I think I have what, what is needed. And I'm letting you guys know that I'm interested in that job, you know, which is one level or even two levels beyond where I was at the time. Yeah. Now, you contrast that with the attitude, and I'm not saying that it's, it's, there's anything wrong with it. I'm just saying if the attitude is someone walks in and they say, well, uh, you know, I want to be the C I want to be the CFO. When? Oh, you know, next week. Um, or I want, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't mind doing this job over here, but I don't want to stay there too long because what I'd rather be doing is something over here. So, you know, the, those people make it very difficult for the company to manage and allocate its resources to get the work done that it needs done. I mean, I'm reminded of a, an African-American woman who uh, we, we recruited out of Columbia. She came in with, you know, uh, uh, quite a lot of expectations. Uh, but literally, and this is, this is the honest truth, we could not find a job in all of Exxon Corporation that she wanted to do. Mm. I mean, she, she, she signed on, she came to an interview, she, she received an offer, she accepted the offer. Uh, she came to work, she said, I don't really wanna do this, this kind of work over here. We said, okay, let's look around. Uh, what kind of work do you wanna do? Well, I wanna do, you know, I wanna do some uh, arbitrage activity. <laughs> we said, arbitrage? <laughs> <laughs> This is Exxon. Yeah. We don't need to do arbitrage. Um, and, and so her, you know, her, her career was literally, uh, I mean, it was off the rails. It never really got started. And I think she hung around for two or three years and then she was gone. So, so the message is uh, it's not what you want to do at least in isolation, is what you want to do in the context of what the employer, the organization needs done. I can't, I can't imagine you going, if you were applying for a job at McDonald's and you walked into McDonald's and you said, I want to make burritos. <laughs> I only want to make burritos. Mm. We don't have those on the menu. Well, you know, I mean, I want to work here because you pay well, but I only want to make burritos. So, um, so I think that's a that's 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 an important thing, and I think it's you know it, it's sort of you know I always worry about the lessons that I learned in the '70s, '80s, '90s, uh, the first decade of uh, the 21st century. Uh, are they applicable today? And when I talk to people who are, you know, still uh, engage whether it's in large corporations or in entrepreneurial activities one of the things that they say uh that's that's most difficult for them to deal with is finding people with the skills they need who desire also to apply those skills in an or in the organization that they represent mm. so if you want to go for, go to work for microsoft and you don't know anything about computers and windows and software and and uh cloud computing it's going to be difficult to get a job at microsoft yeah 
So I yeah. tell people, you know, check the companies out, check the industry out, check the companies out, locations, location. There's another uh, another issue. I think I already, you know, kind of went through the point that I lived in. Uh, uh, I think I moved seven different times mm-hmm. uh, to Exxon. And uh, every time you move, even when I was a, a single person, uh, uh, it was a difficult move because you know of, of existing relationships in the in the in the area that I lived, and uh, then as a you know as a married person or a family man, and you've got to come home and tell your wife who's just made a, a group of fabulous friends and has people to hang out with, and that oh by the way we're not only are we moving but but we're moving out of the country. Yeah, and um, and so, uh, but, but again, here's the point. Uh, my employer needed me, needed my skills in a different geographic location than where I was currently based. Yeah, so my decision was: Do I want to continue to utilize my skills here? In which case, I need to move or I need to find a new employer, or I need to go into business for myself. Become an entrepreneur, then I can determine where I live and what I do. The only issue with entrepreneurship, I mean, I think entrepreneurship is great. In fact, I do some things today that you consider entrepreneurial, although I don't employ anyone, so I want to make sure that uh, (laughs) no one's dependent on me for that payroll. (laughs) But, But even as an entrepreneur, it's still... Uh, you have to have a way of generating revenue, making money, and yeah. parlance, and 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 usually that comes from having a skill, mm-hmm. uh, some type of skill, some type of asset, and if you don't have them, you need to acquire them, and sometimes you need to acquire them through other people. Well, once again, if you, if you're finding people who really don't uh, either not they don't want to work for your organization or they don't want to do what you want them to do. It's just not going to work. Yeah. It's not going to work. Cheryl. So if you, I've, I've noticed a certain trend and I think it's common for a lot of people. There's a certain attitude and mindset that you had, even as a young person. I mean, I know you're raised by a military father. So I, some discipline was part of your upbringing, but you had a certain attitude. You asked, the questions you had a clear sense of what you wanted to do and where you wanted to go. Would you describe that as being innate or is it a learned thing? And if it's learned, how do people learn to embrace and adapt that kind of mindset? Well, I think it's, I think, you know, it's different for every individual. So, you know, let me take you through my best recollection of, of, of sort of the mindset that I had. You know that my father uh, served in the military. Uh, 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 when he joined the military, uh, he was not a high school graduate. Uh, he got his GED uh, while he was in the military. And um, uh, and he was a drill instructor. So yes, he was, he was a disciplinarian and he was the kind of guy that, you know, as a father, uh, you just didn't cross. So once I learned uh, that the the best way out of here in one piece is to listen to instructions and follow them. Uh, and I think that's kind of been a bit of a bit of a trait that I've known, you know, understand hierarchies and understand authority. Yeah. And, um, 
and uh, if you don't like the authority, then you need to remove yourself from, from the environment. Um, so yes, discipline uh, was part of it. Uh, but the other part of the story is my, my, my father, after, uh, after retiring from the military, uh, now, in, in terms of his life, he decided that, you know, he was tired of saying yes, sir, no, sir, and tired of the military discipline and tired of all the, the geographic moves. And in fact, he retired just before uh, being offered an opportunity to go to Vietnam in the very early days of the Vietnam War. This would have been about 1963 or 1964. And uh, my mother, you know, basically said, you served in Korea, you served in World War II. Uh, two wars is enough for, for one man. So the you know, mom had a great influence. He made the decision to retire. He did not want to work for anyone else. And so he opened a gas station. And, uh, and from, uh, from the time I was about 11 years old, uh, I worked in the gas station. I mean, that was just part of, I mean, everybody in my family worked. Uh, my mother worked. Uh, my, my brother worked. Uh, I worked you know, along with, with my father. So, uh, you know, spending uh, some afternoons and most of Saturdays uh, at the gas station, I learned a lot of skills, uh, but but what I really learned and what really, really influenced, I think, the rest of my life was I did not want to spend the rest of my life working in the gas station. You wanted to help sell the gas, right? It's a big difference, uh, you know, whether it's being the controller or the CFO of a one hundred billion dollar company versus being the guy who's, uh, uh, you know, the full service uh, yeah. and who's checking your oil and tires. And that was in the days of full serve. You know, you go in and buy gasoline for for twenty or twenty five cents a gallon. And expect that you get your tires checked and your windshield cleaned and your oil checked and your radiator <laughs> fluid checked. And I mean, I mean, and you know, and that's literally every customer. And some customers wow. treated you well. Uh, other customers, uh, you know, on occasion, uh, were not very good. Uh, and so, but the point was, I, I had a great experience in learning how to work, learning how to accomplish things, learning how to be at a certain place on time um i also learned how to hustle because you know gas stations are retail businesses mm -hmm. so everything that you sell you bought from someone else and you need to sell at a slightly higher price to earn a margin in order to cover your costs including your expenses and the salaries uh for your employees and so i knew that for for, for me to get paid i needed to sell stuff so I became a great salesman. I could sell you, I could sell everything. You'd come in and you'd have a boss following new tires. And before you leave, you'd have four new tires. And new new windshield wiper blades. And uh, hey, your oil is kind of dirty. When did you last have it changed? Um, and so I learned all of this uh, between the ages of 11 and 17. And and also during that period, I not only worked uh, for my father, but you know, I, I, uh, I had a friend who had a paper route who whenever he went out of town and went on vacation. You know, I'd do his paper route when he was gone. Mm. Uh, I worked for Safeway, bagging groceries. Uh, uh, I did apartment construction cleanup work. I mean, uh, uh, anything you could do to earn a little bit of money and earn it legally, uh, mm. I did it 
while I was in junior high and high school. And, and so I think that gave me sort of a sense of, okay, you know, how do you make money? How do you, how do you provide a service? How do you provide a service, superior service that people want to come back to? Uh, but at the end of the day, I knew that I didn't want to work in a gas station. Now, let me, let me switch over to my father. At the same time that he was, he was happy. I mean, this, this is what he wanted to do in his post-military career. He was happy. He would work there seven days a week. He'd take he would not take vacations for years on end. Uh, but at the same time, when he talked to me and my brother, it was always aspirational. Yes, we had a lot of discipline in the household. Yes, we had a lot of expectations in terms of doing either working or doing your chores around the house. Uh, but he, he never put a ceiling uh, either directly or inadvertently on our aspirations. It was for him, it was always about, you know, you must do more than I did. You must go further than I did. And, and the way for you to do it is to educate yourself. And I will help you as much as I can or as long as I can to get the education that you need to go out and compete is that the word he liked to use to compete and he used to call it this man's world which is kind of you know like this man's army yeah and so so i had a you know i mean i was fortunate in the sense that although my my, my parents uh, my my mother uh is, is a college graduate today but she entered college when she was 46 years old mm. my brother and i had both not only left home we had both finished college uh, and it both earned graduate degrees, and she decided it was her turn. But 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 the the, the symbolism of her going to college at, at 46 was not lost on us. That, that mom who had worked and you know been been very much a super mom because she worked outside the home and she always made sure that there there was, there was a meal ready uh, for us when we got home from uh, football or basketball practice. Uh, you know, she, she kept her house clean. I mean, I, she's still living. She's 90 years old, and I still tell her, I don't know how you did it. Mm. Um, but she did. And um, But in, in her mind, education was important. So we, we, we got positive messages about education. There, really, there was really never any question. I mean, you know, we, we finished high school, and, it, and it, there, was, there was no questions about sitting down, what are you going to do some? It was where you going to school, son. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I think that that gave me maybe a bit of a head start on on some people who are coming from a you know different place in terms of in terms of how they were raised and their experiences when they were raised. But 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 for me, there was a very strong focus, very strong motivation to uh, to go to school. Uh, I had an idea that I wanted to do something uh, in the financial arena. I uh, didn't know what that was. Uh, I thought maybe I'd go to work for a bank because I knew, you know, I used to observe that at, when I worked at the gas station that, that uh, white guys who stopped and got gas from me always had on suits. Yeah. And I asked one of them one day, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm a banker. And I said, hmm, that looks pretty good to me. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'll go into you know, and that sort of got me into to, to studying accounting and finance yeah. and economics. And, uh, 
and then by by the time I had been three years at UCLA, I understood the landscape a little bit better. So choosing the MBA path as opposed to the, the law school path, which was my other uh, thought at the time, uh, became pretty easy for me because I, you know, my, my sense of the law was um, either you would, you know, be uh, employed by a big law firm, which, you know, wasn't happening very much back in the 1970s, or you were just going to be out here, you know, kind of hustling for clients. And, and, you know, we, all of us have run into lawyers who were, you know, not the most scrupulous people and, and <laughs> formed your, your, your views of a profession. Now that's not fair. And I'm not labeling the entire, labeling the entire legal profession. Sure. They're saying. If you sure. run for one, that person makes a mark on you. And yeah. You deciding as a 17, 18, 19, 20 year old, whether or not you want to go into that profession. So, you know, unfortunately I, I met one that, that, that I didn't like and, uh, and that kind of turned me away from the law. So that, that's how I ended up in going to business school. And, and I'm pretty pleased with the place. Yes. And so your, your career is off to a, what I'd say was a good start. I'm sure you, you acknowledged a lot of, uh, you, you, you essentially achieved a lot of firsts along the way, but you're an oil and gas guy which as we know is a cyclical business. So there's some rough patches along the way. Talk to me about some of those downtimes, just challenging uh, experiences you endured in your career. Was there ever a point you considered throwing in the towel? And how did you overcome uh, those moments and put yourself in a position to eventually thrive and really have this uh, historic career? Yeah, uh, you know, great question. That's a pretty uh, complex question. Uh, uh, the first um, significant downturn uh, in my career occurred about uh, eight years in. I've been with the company about eight years. I had <clears throat> just been uh, promoted to uh, uh, to a managerial uh, position in the company. And uh, literally uh, after moving back to Houston from New York. Um, we had a big industry downturn uh, and we needed to reduce the size of the workforce. Uh, and as I recall, it was either a, a 15% or maybe even 20% reduction in the workforce uh, under one of the programs. And so the first uh, priority of mine was to make sure that, that I was not going to be one of the... <laughs> who, you know, who unfortunately uh, were going to lose their jobs. Mm. And, um, and so part of that is, you know, kind of picking up signals and listening to people. And if you know, you have someone that you can, you can trust uh, that uh, you can trust with the information they might give you, you chat with them. And so fairly early on, I, you know, was, was pretty clearly informed that, that no, you you don't have anything to worry about. Um, but but I did have something to worry about because because what what happened though is I, as I said I was in my first managerial position, and that put me in the position of having in, in, in the work group I had about eighty or ninety people uh, under me, and I had to uh, basically fire something like fifteen or twenty people, and. Um, 
you know, I don't know if some people, you know, there's some people that are just, uh, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, they're conscienceless or they're heartless or they just, you know, they just go and do it. For me, uh, uh, this was difficult. It, it, it was extremely hard. And I didn't have any outs. I didn't have any boundaries. I didn't have any, any ways of manipulating the numbers or something so I could save one or two people. I, I mean, it was... I think the number was 15%, and I had to take out 15% of my people. And so, um, so you know, I used the process of the company design and the communications uh, package that they gave us and, and got the job done. But it was uh, it was a very difficult process for me, and it, it, it did a couple things for me. One, it made me recognize that, uh, you know, none of those people you know, six months prior to that, expected that in six months they would be losing their job. And and so I had to then take on the attitude that, you know, you just never know. They, they, they told me I was fine here. I turned out to be fine. But you never know if it happens again, you might be included. Mm -hmm. so, so I carried that with me the rest of my career, that, that there's, you know, being African-American in a major uh, corporation at the time <clears throat> did not allow you to feel entitled. Or the word today is privileged. Mm. And I work with a lot of guys, you know, happen to be white, who uh, had this sense of entitlement. They were entitled to this job. Uh, it was a privilege of who they were in America that they could have this job. And when the job was taken away from them, uh, I mean, they literally became unhinged, mm -hmm. unmoved, uh, uh, began to express rage. How, how can this happen? And how can I be getting the word from a black man? <laughs> yeah. And I've just lost my job that I feel entitled to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a sense, I kind of feel sorry for them because, uh, you know, Exxon's just a big version of a corner gas station. I mean, it's it produces oil and gas and it refines the the oil and ultimately sells it to someone who sells it to you at the gas station. <clears throat> and there are times when even a company like Exxon, such as today, mm -hmm. under pressure. And uh, I know that Chevron has already had a 20% workforce reduction, and BP has already had a 15 or 20% workforce reduction. But you're not entitled to employment for life. You're entitled to do the job as long as the employer needs you. If you're an entrepreneur, you're entitled to be an entrepreneur as long as you can find ways to make money, whatever it is yeah. you need to do. And the day people stop patronizing your establishment, if you happen to, to be in food service or no one wants to buy a house from you or to lease commercial property from you, then you got, you got to find a different prescription. So, there, so, so employment, in, especially in our capitalist economy, it's not an entitlement. Mm -hmm. It's not a, it's, there's no inherent right that you're going to 
you know, go into business and make a lot of money. Now, if you enter the right sector at the right time with the right skills and the right capital and the right support and the right employees, then there may be opportunities. There may be great opportunities. Yeah. But all those things come into play. And so, so I think the point I'm making is that, uh, you know, when I talk to young people, it, you know, I said, look, you know, I, I sense the, uh, you know, I sense there's some entitlement here. Mm. And, and trust me, it's not there. You may believe it's there, but it's not there. Yeah. Sure. So I think for most people, there's a turning point when you realize that you're well on your way. Uh, what was that moment for you? Was it a promotion that you got? And then what happens subsequently? And, and it's also this thing, especially for, for brothers uh, who are at a certain level in corporate America, uh, you get a certain promotion, it stands out, it makes waves within the company. Then you have the added pressure of not messing it up. So <laughs> if you'll unwind some of that and share what that journey was like for you. Yep. So, you know, I guess uh, maybe the easiest way to talk about it is I had a series of uh, assignments when I, <clears throat> after getting my first uh, management assignment. I had a series of uh, managerial assignments. Um, uh, and then my boss called me in one day and said, uh, uh, we have another job for you. Uh, you are uh, going to become the executive assistant to the president of Exxon Company USA. And uh, I said, well, which is what I always said when, when I received news of a new assignment. I said, uh, thank you. When do I start? And uh, he gave me the dates and I left his office and I walked out of the office. And I, I, I then realized, you know, up to that point in time, maybe you have a sense that you're doing well and, and uh, you're, being, you're being rated well relative because it's all relative to the competition. You don't absolutely know what these guys from Harvard and Stanford and Wharton and the University of Texas and, and uh, the University of Chicago, you know, you, you know, they're good. Mm -hmm. And in your own heart, in your own mind, you think you're good, but you really don't know how well you're doing until you get these kinds of signature assignments. So when I received the assignment, I knew that that, you know, despite this is roughly 1992. So this is still relatively early days for African-Americans working in major corporations. In fact, by that time, uh, by the time I received that assignment uh, at the age of uh, 35, uh, there were only four or five African-Americans in the entire company who were at a higher level than I had attained at the age of 35. And, and that's not a boastful comment, it's a mournful comment. You know, in a company that, that prides itself on long-term employment and uh, people uh, uh, acquiring the skills that you need as you move up the ladder, and, and yet <clears throat> Exxon in, in roughly 1991 or 1992, and maybe I was a little bit older, I was 30, 37 years old. Uh, but I'd already kind of reached the, the, the head of the pack for 
African-Americans. And it was very disconcerting to me that, that because, you know, there, there, that means limited opportunities for where am I going to find a mentor? Yeah. An African-American mentor that I could really relate to. Um, uh, so, so that was, that was tough. And, uh, and then I ended up working for <laughs> the president. I, I'm one of the few executive assistants who got to work for two presidents and that's because one of my presidents was, uh, I, I think sort of, you know, l let's just say chose to retire early. And, uh, and so that wasn't a great situation. And you talk about, you know, not messing it up. Uh, well, I chose to not messing up the job anyway. I chose to do something in my capacity as executive assistant, which was to, I mean, it was something uh, I, I thought it was trivial, um, uh, was to kind of give my departing president a book of mementos. You know, I went out and had my administrative assistant purchase a leather bound volume. And then I kind of sent it around to business leaders around Houston and some of the senior leaders in our organization and had them, uh, you know, pen a short note and then we bound it up nicely and we gave it to him at his going away party. Well, the number two guy who didn't become the new number one guy, he stayed the number two guy, but, 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 but that was fine. But he was outraged that I had done this, mm. that, that I had done it without, you know, consulting with him and that I had done it without truly understanding, you know, why this guy was leaving and probably the worst thing you could have done was to go out and, and, and create a book of mementos for him. Wow. So, so thinking about messing things up, I thought at that point I was toast. Um, and as it turned out, uh, no, I wasn't toast. Uh, I got, I, uh, I received a, a, a rather, um, uh, uh, severe talking to, which for some people might have, they might have taken it, you know, offensively and said, you know, you can't talk to me like that or, or, you know, it's not a big deal. Why are you making a big deal of it? Nope. I just, I listened, hmm. I nodded and I went back to my office and that's the last uh, anyone said about, about the gift and, and about the aftermath. And, and over time, you know, I kind of figured out that the mistake wasn't fatal and, and, uh, and and ultimately, then received another assignment coming out of that, uh, which was to move into the international side of the company, and um, uh, and that was also a good sign. So so I knew at that point that uh, you know that I was on my way. That that um, uh, you know I just needed to continue to perform. And uh, the only difference was as I as we moved away from Houston, I was now married, and. Uh, you know, starting a family. And so suddenly your priorities have to be reordered a little bit. So I go away from the guy who doesn't matter. Uh, you know, if something needs to be done. Uh, I could get it done because I didn't have a lot of competing priorities. Uh, so I had to learn how to manage that. And, and I'll just say that it was, it was difficult. I mean, all kudos, uh, to my, my lovely wife of uh, 20, and companion of 30 years and wife of 28 years, Sylvia. Uh, mm. She, you know, she understood. I'm not, I didn't say she agreed, <laughs> but she understood. 
and uh, and she supported it. You know, when I had to, to be away and, uh, you know, especially I went to the international side of the company and we were based in New Jersey, but we managed Exxon's oil and gas operations uh, all around the globe. Yeah. And, uh, in fact, one of the first things I did after getting, after being assigned to the job is I had to take a trip. And uh, uh, we bought one plane ticket for this trip, uh, which included 17 cities in 16 countries on five continents. One consecutive, it took me six weeks. So imagine mm -hmm. coming home, hi darling, just got a new job, just relocated from Houston to New Jersey. Uh, oh, guess what? Um, I'm gonna be gone the next six weeks. So, um, you know, so she had a, a fair amount. Now, luckily at the time we didn't have any kids and so you know, probably the worst she had to deal with was kind of being, you know, home alone a lot in an area that was completely new to her. But, uh, but you know, she handled it and, uh, and then handled an international move. Uh, the, the international move was just, you know, you get you're getting continuous reinforcement that you are on the right track in the company to, you know, move to the international side then actually go abroad and work as an expatriate in another country. And then coming out of there, I, I moved back to the U.S. company, but I was now a controller of the U.S. company. So, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, by, by the end, you, you know that that uh, that you're uh, uh, doing well from a career standpoint. But but then you have to, you know, kind of assess, OK, is this what I really want to be doing? Uh, can I maintain good priorities? Because now I have other responsibilities, uh, especially family and, and, and kids. And um, and then remember, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to describe, but but all of these people I described, these, you know, these guys who graduated from Harvard mm -hmm. and Stanford and oh. schools I named, mm -hmm. uh, they are still competing with you for jobs. So as you kind of then continue to look up the ladder, what else is up there? You know, becoming a finance director becoming a controller, becoming uh, uh, the head of investor relations, becoming a business, you know, uh, a business group, chief financial officer. Well, you still have all these guys out here who, who to some extent have the same experience as you do. And, 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 and while I have you, I got to say something. This, this could be controversial, uh, but, but, but I, I think it bears, bears saying when, when, when I was, you know, coming out of school, and, and especially in the context of the time, uh, people were telling me, you know, you work at this company, Exxon, uh, you know, you're going to have to work twice as hard and be twice as good in order to get ahead. Of it. Now, what I'm going to say in, in hindsight is that's some of the worst advice you can give a young person. Because all it ends up doing is creating, is creates anxiety, creates stress. So think about it. Think about it, Lalu. Mm. I joined a company with an MBA from UCLA. I find out through my first several assignments that my competition for jobs are, you know, predominantly white men and, and some women who graduated from the finest business schools in the country, 
who have the same aspirations I may have of being the controller or the CFO or, or head up the foundation or whatever. And we are competing. And then you're going to tell me I've got to be twice as good as they are in order to compete. And I'm sitting there looking across. The, it's like it's like being on a high school football team. Take the best high school football team you can name here in the state of Texas and, and says, hey, guys, we're playing for the state championship and our opponent is the University of Texas. So, guys, you're going to have to you're going to have to be twice as good as you are. You're going to have to be twice as big, twice as fit. I mean, it's it's unfair to mm. burden people with that notion of having to be twice as good. The, the real notion is we have to do everything possible to make sure that the playing field is level. So that the God-given talents you have can be assessed fairly relative to the God-given talents that these other people have. So make sure the playing field is level. That's where our efforts, that's where our, our I mean, everything we're doing. I mean, what I what I sense, you know, part of Black Lives Matter is, is you know, the playing field is not level. You're a black man, you get stopped by the police, you have a real chance of, of being beaten up or dying when you've done nothing wrong. Mm. White man stopped by police. You joke. You 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 talk about your kids, and you're on your way. Mm. And that is fundamentally unfair. Yeah. And so that's the that's why the effort has to be about you know leveling the playing field, bringing a true sense of fairness, a true sense of equity, a true sense of equality in this society. And until we get there, you know, this society is going to be prone to disruption and problems because it's one thing for me to sit across the table from, I'm just reminded of one of the guys that I was, in a sense, kind of competing with all the years. And, you know, and I'd kind of looked across the table and in and some kind of way I found out he was, he had scored, a, you know, like a 1560 on the SAT and, was a 4.0 undergrad at, a, I think, MIT or somewhere like that in the Harvard Business School. And, uh, and I'm looking across the table at him saying, hmm, so I got to be twice as good? You know, I just, I, I mean, I'm going to be fighting hard to be as good. Mm. If I'm as good, I just simply want that to be recognized. Yeah. But I don't want to carry the burden of, of looking across the table at a, you know, talented, intelligent, smart, you know, probably a, a great upbringing, uh, private schools, uh, you know, has all the advantages. But it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, he's sitting there, I'm sitting here, we're competing for jobs. I've got to make sure that I put my best foot forward every day. If I come up a little short. I'm fine. I don't want to, you know, turn around and somebody say, well, you know, you were never going to get there because you had to be twice as good. No. I just want the people making the assessments to say, well, you know, you know, compared to Frank, you know, Gerald's pretty good. But, yeah, yeah you know, Frank had that extra one or two horsepower and, and he got the job. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. But I'm just telling our own people, stop this 
you got to work. You got to be twice as good stuff because it makes it extremely difficult for the individual bearing that sort of advice and attitude to then go in the workplace and, and then be objective about the competition and then yeah. say, I'm, I'm, I'm still going to go out here and compete, although I know that I've got to be twice as good. And so what tends to happen to people is they actually detach. Yeah. Yeah. So point I can't win. So, so why, why, why am why I going to uh, very poignant observation. Um, I, I want to ask a few more questions about your career. By 37, you're in this high-level position. Talk about the difficulty of finding mentors, but at the same time, you're being called on to mentor others. So what was the balancing act uh, that you had to achieve uh, at that transition? And then at which point at which point um, in your career did you, in fact, uh, become the highest ranking African-American at ExxonMobil? Well, as far as finding mentors, uh, <clears throat> you know, one of the things I, I, I did find, let's go back to that first story about the, uh, you know, the, the man from Mississippi. Uh, uh, along the way, uh, I found a number of uh, white men who who were very willing to mentor me, to support me, to push me, to um, uh, propose me for uh, higher positions in the company, and uh, and so so for me though, I mean you know really you got to kind of look at look at yourself and say. Am I willing to receive mentorship, receive, uh, you know, information from people who don't look like me? And, um, you know, because I'd had the early career experience with Sam, I actually found it pretty easy. I mean, I could I could I could sort of figure out who was in my corner and who wasn't. And uh, and I think that's probably, you know, that's an ability to discern that that's developed. And, and I advise all young people to develop it. Try to figure out who's in your corner. And, and, and you can't start with whether or not they look like you or whether or not they're the same gender, because they may well not look like you. Um, and in my case, uh, now, now, I do have to say there were uh, there were African-Americans there who uh, may not have been a higher level. There was one in particular who was a higher level that, that was an uh, outstanding mentor. Uh, he's passed away now, but he, he, he should have gone much higher in Exxon uh, than, than what he was able to achieve. He, was, he had held a doctorate degree from the University of Michigan in economics. He, he'd been a White House fellow. He was, I mean, a superb resume. But because he was about, you know, eight to 10 years older than we were, he, he joined at a time when, you know, if you think the obstacles were tough for me, for him and others like him, you know, it was probably impossible. I mean, people in the company couldn't see him in a significant position in the company just because he was black, although I thought he was brilliant. So, so he was extremely helpful. I'll tell you somewhere somewhere else uh, I received, and, and, and maybe mentoring is not 
not quite the right word or relationship, but one of the, one of the skills I learned early on was to treat everyone well. And this is something that I, you know, I see that, you know, a lot of people, they, they hear that and they acknowledge it and they nod their head, but, but then they turn around and they don't do it. So quick story uh, about Joe. And Joe uh, didn't work, wasn't an employee of Exxon, but he, he kind of had his own business. He shined shoes. And, and he basically come around the building, come around the office. And if you were one of his customers, he'd have a little seat. He'd sit there, he'd shine your shoes and you paid him every two weeks and, and he would go on. And uh, over time, uh, he became something of a, of a, you know, a, a point of contention for a lot of African-American employees because they saw him as, you know, such a harbinger of the past and, and, uh, uh they just didn't like the symbolism of a black man walking around the building, shining shoes and things like that. Now, what what they didn't understand about Joe was that he had, Joe, I believe, had an eighth grade education that started shining shoes at Exxon in the 1950s, the late 1950s, I believe, when he started. And over the course of doing this for some 40 years, uh, uh, sent eight kids to college. Eight of his children became college graduates. And, and, and he provided much, if not most, of their support. Uh, the other thing they didn't recognize about Joe, in addition to the exemplary character I just described, was that, you know, I just said, he, he's a guy who's going around the building shining shoes, and he had a lot of customers, including the senior management of the company. And so guess what? Joe could walk into literally any office in the building where he had a customer and go in and shine shoes, including the most senior guys. Now, he only had an eighth grade education, but Joe was not drunk. In, in many cases where, you know, significant matters of business were being discussed and they continued to discuss it, you know, didn't, didn't bother worried about whether Joe was there or not. And Joe was able to share a lot of that information with me. Mm. And I probably shouldn't say this, but you know, hey, the company's changed and you know, so we don't have to worry about it. But yes, uh, you know, information is a prized commodity in large organizations. And the ability to get it and to get it on a timely basis uh, is extremely important. And Joe was one of my most significant sources of key information that I could use in, in during my career at ExxonMobil. So it's not mentoring in the sense, but but it's but it's you know someone that you can communicate with who shares with you important information, shares with you information. Joe told me when I was about to be relocated, uh, he told me two weeks ahead of the time they actually notified. Me. Mm. So I had two weeks to think about it and figure out how to go home and break the news to my wife and and actually begin the plan because it's not that we were we were not going to turn it down, but it's that we gained two weeks. Yeah, this was important, and so so you never know who might be able to assist you, and and sometimes you know people that have this you know kind of condescending attitude about other people who may not be in the same position or job or 
or company, um, you, you, you'll never know what you miss. Yeah. And so that's the lesson I learned, and it, it was it was vital to, to my overall career at Exxon. One of your mentees is not the highest ranking African-American at ExxonMobil. Can you share a bit about what you've done to mentor others? Uh, yeah, you know, in fact, uh, 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 you mentioned, you know, one of my one of my mentees. Uh, if you see him uh, telling me he owes me some money for all the <laughs> advice I've given him all the years. Uh, all <laughs> uh, no, I, I um, uh, you know, kind of in a sense took it upon myself uh, to uh, make myself available uh, to African-American employees. I mean, I recognize that, you know, from the time I was, you know, maybe, uh, 30 or 32 years old that, you know, suddenly I'm one of the senior African-Americans in the, in the company and that, uh, people are going to, uh, uh, you know, they they will desire to have a relationship with me and especially one where they might be able to gain useful information that might be useful to them in their careers. Um, so, so I took that on and I, I'd have to say that, that, uh, uh, you know, my workload as a result of that work, uh, was probably as much as 20% higher than my peers who didn't have, you know, they might've had one or two, uh, I had 40 or 50, 60, mm many of whom didn't even work in the same part of the company or the same function of the company. I had engineers calling me for advice, marketing people calling me for advice. Uh, on a typical day, you know, the phone's going to ring five or six times a day and it, it's totally unrelated to my own business. Mm -hmm. So I could have chosen to, you know, to metaphorically not answer or to disengage and just not be involved, but, but but where I could help, you know, my attitude was to do everything I could to try to help, um, you know, people who, in a, by reaching out, were trying to help themselves. And in the case of my 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 special friend, um, you know, and I I think I've told them this before, but but and this is very important in understanding mentor mentee relationships. Um, he reached out to me. I didn't see him at a company event or something. Uh, uh, he, he, I think the term is he cold called me. Mm. He said, hi, my name is, and, uh, you know, are you Gerald? Yes. Uh, I'd like to meet you. You know, can we get together? And you'll be surprised at, the number of people who never took that small step. Mm. And we were never able to, you know, frankly, develop a relationship versus that small step, which I, which ultimately blossomed into, a, you know, a lifelong friendship. And, you know, just, I love this brother. Uh, you know, he's just out, been outstanding in, in, in everything he does. Um, but, but, you know, your mentors don't just drop on your doorstep. Yeah. You have to be willing in most cases 
to make the first step. Because remember, if, if I had, you know, heard about Steve and I had called him uh, and said, hey, let's get together, chances are the relationship develops in a very different way mm-hmm. because he becomes just one of several people that I have, you know, I've called on, somebody said, hey, here's somebody. I'm reminded of a of another employee who whose manager, who happened to be white, came to me and, and asked me if I would mentor, you know, this fellow who's in who's African American in his organization and here's some of here are some of his strengths and here are some of his weaknesses. And you know, Gerald, I know you can help him with that. So what I what I said to my white colleague was, sure, I would be happy to do what I can. Have him call me. Mm-hmm. He never called me. Mm. Interesting. So in wrapping up, what's on the horizon for you and any closing remarks? Uh, what's on the horizon? Well, you know, one of the things you, you, you begin to realize, if you haven't already realized, is that, uh, you know, that, that your time on Earth is uh, is finite. I mean, it's 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 set. You don't know uh, when or how you may depart, but but you're you're not going to be here forever. And I've always kind of taken that to heart in terms of what 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 I do. Um, uh, but I'm you know not especially looking to um, uh, you know run for political office or you know going to some activity that that, uh, you know, brings with it a lot of, uh, whether it's fanfare or, uh, as I sometimes say, making speeches, because I've I've made more than my share of speeches mm-hmm. over the last 30 years. But, uh, um, you know, I'm currently serving, uh, as you know, as a regent uh, at the University of Houston. Uh, it's great work. Uh, you know, universities are large institutions. They have many constituencies. Um, you know, the University of Houston, uh, I think, actually has a wonderful overall history as it relates to African-Americans. Now, I didn't say perfect, but, but uh, you know, as far as, uh, you know, opening up and then embracing African-Americans and, and allowing African-American students to, uh, you know, to really achieve, you know, not only in things like student government and athletics, but but, but even academics uh, that, uh, you know, we've had graduates, uh, you know, I'm just reminded if I can digress a second of a, of a young woman who just graduated from our honors college uh, with a degree in mechanical engineering and was accepted directly into the PhD program in, in uh, materials engineering at Yale. And so, you know, U of H was providing, I think, a great service but the institution, the, the governance of the institution has to reflect uh, the general society, uh, the student constituency, uh, as well as the teachers and others. And so, uh, you know, I don't know that we've always had, uh, you know, a loud voice because I'm, you know, I mean, I, that's what I am. I'm a loud voice. I'm going to speak my mind if I see something that I don't like. Uh, everybody knows that I, that I don't like it, 
and um, we need those kind of voices. And so for that reason, you know, I'm looking forward to the next uh, year and a half uh, serving as a regent. Uh, I, I kind of joked with um, one of the uh, senior <clears throat> members of the UH administration that I said, I said, you know, you, you guys get a lot more in me as a regent because uh, I'm not uh, distracted by the worries about uh, what's going on in the world. So I can focus on uh, on you guys. And, of course, they, they, they shuddered, <laughs> wondering <laughs> what's on my mind and, you know, what I'm going after next. But, uh, no, I think it's a worthwhile cause. And, uh, you know, I've, I've gotten more involved in the political arena from the standpoint of uh, – uh, of raising money for candidates, uh, you know, I've uh, raised a fair amount of money for uh, for Royce West, who's running for the U.S. Senate, uh, because I believe that you know Texas needs a change <clears throat> in in its senatorial representation. It's not because Royce is black; it's because the current incumbent, uh, in my opinion, has been completely ineffective for the people of Texas. And so I believe he needs to go. Uh, I will uh, vote in the presidential election. I will talk to as many people as I can about the presidential election, because I think we would probably agree that the current incumbent in the White House needs to go if this country is to survive. If he stays another four years, I don't know if what remains will still be called the United States of America. And I hope, I hope all of my white friends have a chance to hear this message that it's not about black or white. I mean, you know, one day you're gonna wake up and say, you know, the prior guy, I might not have liked him because he was black and he wore tan suits, but, but you know, he was actually smart. He was <laughs> capable, he was a good manager. He was extremely well-respected around the world. He set up uh, uh, processes that, for example, uh, more than likely would have prevented this pandemic yeah. structures in place. And then you put a guy in the white house and, and, you know, again, you may not like the other guy because he's black. Don't say, I don't like this, this guy because he's white. No, that's not the case. The case is he's unfit. He's unqualified. He doesn't know how to manage. He doesn't know how to hire people. He has generated no respect around the world. I mean, it's one thing when, you have a problem with the leader of a certain country. But when the leaders of the entire G7, this year, this your leader, I mean, America can do better. I think, I think we could at random put 20 names in a hat, including the current incumbents. I'm sorry, excluding the current incumbents. Pick one of those 20 names and you would have come up with a better qualified person for the job. He needs to go. And so that's how, that's my view of it. And so I'll do what I can. I mean, I'm not a big political player at any level, but I think that, you know, people I talk to, uh, my friends, uh, you know, my, my I've even gotten on Facebook. I mean, that's something I've never really done in, in my past. Uh, but anybody on Facebook knows that, that I'm constantly opposed to the current incumbent. And it has nothing to do with whether he's, he's white. Doesn't even, doesn't even have anything to do with whether he's conservative or not. I mean, I mean, a, a competent conservative, you know, I may still vote against him, but I wouldn't be doing any, anything anywhere near what I'm doing in regard to the current incumbent because he, he is a dangerous 
uh, man for this country. And so we need to go. So that's what's on the horizon. That That's the near term. And, you know, we'll stay with U of H. We'll do some things in the political arena. Uh, I've got a couple of uh, not-for-profit boards that I'm considering joining. And, uh, and I'm going to play a lot of golf. Excellent. Excellent. So connect with talented people, be persistent, and figure out how to level the playing field. My guest today has been Gerald McKelvey, and you've been listening to My Brother Podcast. Pleasure, brother. Whenever you're facing doubt, brothers gon' work it out. I'm so proud. I got no shakeable face. My, my.